for the scripture today, there's going to be, uh, there's a reason why you are sitting down. It's a quite a long one, but the, uh, it's going to turn to Acts 6 chapter, or I'm sorry, verse 8, um, and we're going to go all the way in through the end of chapter 7. Uh, context here, we're talking about the early church. For those of you who are not familiar with uh, the way the flow of the Bible is, this is after Jesus has already been killed and resurrected, and, and this is in the aftermath where they're creating the new church, and a lot of the apostles have, have now formed off of the early church here. And so uh, there's some, some incredible story, uh, from where it's focused on Stephen today, uh, about what that looks like. So uh, if you follow me along with chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members in the synagogue, uh, or the freemen as it was called, Jews of uh, Cyrene, Alexandria, and as well as the provinces of Sicily uh, and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit uh, gave him as he spoke. And they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses as handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jesus heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. 
He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wrongdoing his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship, the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan. The images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. 
but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did and so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by the angels and did not keep it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, said, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They rushed, all rushed at him, dragged him out into the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. And they, while they were stoning him, Jesus, or Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. All right. Thank you, Jacob. Uh, Grant, thank you. And uh, Jacob, I appreciate you reading for us. This is, if you were here at the tail end of the first worship gathering, you know that we prayed um, Jacob and his family out. So I appreciate you serving all the way to the finish line, Jacob. I'm going to miss your voice. I miss you. I miss your voice, too. Thanks, dude. Love you. Okay, let's pray, and uh, we'll get right down to work, family. Father, we ask humbly as your needy children that you would pour out your spirit. Fill us with your spirit this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, please open our eyes to our Father's word. Open our ears to hear our Father's voice and our hearts to receive. Jesus, as we spend time in your word, we pray that uh, we would, our confidence would increase. And for those, especially those facing opposition right now, you'd give them a a confidence that shows up as just a calm, steady sense of being okay. Uh, because you are with us, you are our rescuing king, and you stand ready to receive us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we press on in our series this morning entitled Spirit Empowered. Our series has taken us through the first third of the book of Acts. And what we're learning in our Spirit Empowered series is that we are God's Spirit-empowered family. And here's the big idea that we'll see this morning in our brief text. In life and death, God's family exists among the people, serving, sharing, and suffering for God's fame and the good of others, sent by Jesus and empowered by His Spirit. That's a long sentence. If you want to shorten it up, in life and death, God's family exists among the people, serving, sharing, and suffering. Now, Stephen's story begins and ends with one thing the same and one thing very different. Well, what's the same? What did we hear as uh, Jacob and Grant read for us? What remains the same is that Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5 of chapter 6. It says, Stephen, a man, says a few things about him. 
but primarily he is full of the Holy Spirit. And then we moved all the way through the narrative, get near the end of chapter 7, verse 55, and we read again, but he, full of the Holy Spirit. I love the way the author gives us verse 5. He could have just said, Stephen, who was full of the Holy Spirit, or Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He didn't need to tell us that he was a man. We already know that. But he says he's a man. Stephen's a man. Just, just a man. Nothing more. Not a hero. Not special. An ordinary dude. A common man. And the good news of the gospel is that's enough. That's enough. Jesus doesn't need heroes. He doesn't need you to be an extraordinary man or an above average Instagram worthy woman. He uses common people. Men and women who are just, well, men. And women, ordinary common, young men, young boys, boys and girls, if you're in here, teenagers, not extraordinary, just you, the way he created you to be. Ordinary men, ordinary people, ordinary women. So these ordinary men and women, boys and girls are empowered by the spirit. And when we read that Stephen is full of the spirit on both ends of the story, that's the author's way of saying to all of us, look, I know you're reading this and I know you think it's Stephen's story, but it's really not. This is really the spirit's story being lived out through Stephen. So it's his story, kind of, but it's really the Spirit's story. And that's good news for us because we are common people. We are living out a story together, but the pressure's off. We're not the heroes of this story. We need to see in Stephen's uh, story here that just like him, it's actually the Spirit's story being played out through us. And that's good news, too, because we read Stephen's story and we think to ourselves, man, I could never do what he did. No way! I'm not selfless enough. I'm not brave enough. I'm not well-spoken enough. I'm, I would never be brave enough to die that way. And the father looks you back in the eyes and says, yo, son, listen, daughter. Like, listen, I gave the spirit to Stephen, and did I not tell you that I've given you the same spirit in the same way, in the same fullness, same. The Spirit empowered Stephen, a common dude. The Spirit empowers you, good news, common dude, common woman. And so receive the Spirit and walk daily in Him. When we're told to be full of the Spirit, that's really good for us because we know that when we are adopted into the family, the Father gives us His Spirit, right, as a sign of our sonship or being a daughter. But then we're also told to daily walk in the Spirit so we don't fulfill the lusts of our our flesh, our rebel tendencies, and it's also a command. We're, we're told to be full of the Spirit. That's really good news because, listen, how many days a week do you feel like you're not full of the Spirit? Probably like seven, right? So, okay, that's okay. You're normal. That's, that's fine. So you just go to the, all you do is ask, guys. We overcomplicate Christianity. Go back to your dad. Say, dad, I know you, you said you gave me your spirit when I became a son, when I became a daughter. Thank you. I've seen evidences of that. But on normal days, I don't really feel like I'm full of the spirit. So, look, guys, it's just simple. Dad, please empty me of whatever I'm full of, myself, my wisdom, my perceived wisdom, um, the world, whatever, whatever I need to be emptied of so that it can be filled with your spirit again. Please, just today, again, give me this day my daily bread. Please fill me with the Spirit today, right now, right? We just ask. So that remains the same. Stephen's full of the Spirit. What changes? What's different? Well, the story begins with Stephen very much alive. We see him standing strong and serving. 
What changes? What's different? Well, the story concludes with Stephen very much dead. We see him falling. We see him suffering. And we see him dying. But even in this powerful contrast, life to death, something remains the same. In both life and death, Stephen is among the people for their good. Among the people. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. It says this of Stephen's life. In life, he was full of grace and power because of the Spirit's presence. And so he was doing great wonders and signs. Where? Among the people. Among the people. He's doing wonders and signs. Where do you do wonders and signs? Where there's a need for them, right? So among the broken, among the hurting, among those in the margins, among those far from Jesus. It's among the people. And in death, verse 60, chapter 7, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Even in death, Stephen was among people for their good. Look what he asked his dad. Of the very people who were throwing rocks aimed at crushing his skull. The very people who were throwing rocks to knock out his teeth so that he would die a slow and painful death. With the tongue that was still working, Stephen prays to his dad, Dad, don't hold this against them. Still among the people for their good. Guys, that's our father's intent for this family right here in Okinawa. And this family in all time, in all places, that we would be among the people. Not apart from the people. Many of us grew up in circles of Christianity that want to pull you back. Let's form a co-op. Let's protect ourselves. Let's build a fence. The father says, no, I want you among, not apart. I don't want you alike, the world. But I definitely want you among them, distinctly different through the gospel, definitely among. So I think the first question we need to ask this morning, family, is this. Are we existing among the people? Let's ask that about ourselves personally, our families. Let's ask it about our missional communities. And let's ask it about our church family. Do we have a reputation for being out among the people? Or do we expect that people who need Jesus would come to us on a Sunday morning? Are we among the people? You're like, well, yeah, John, I go to work among the people. I go to school among the people. That's not what it means. We all exist among people. Let's talk about a heart posture, that we make it a priority, and so we orient our lives around being among people for their good, intentionally for their good, among the people. Are we? So that's what's the same. That's what's different. Stephen's full of the Spirit. He moves from life to death, but he remains among the people for their good. And there's progression to the story. We see it progress from serving people, sharing the gospel, and suffering persecution. But in all three phases, two things are true. Stephen is among people and empowered by the Spirit. Family, again, that's the Father's intent for us. We overcomplicate Christianity, but this is the way of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, and among the people, empowered by the Spirit, and among the people. So let's look at each phase of the story a little more closely. Serving, sharing, suffering. That's how our outline will break down. That's how the text breaks down. Serving, sharing, suffering. Serving people. Last week, we met Stephen. We saw him serving tables. What we learned was Stephen was part of a team of seven dudes who'd been stood up because the church realized, yo, our immigrant minority widows are on the margins. There's not equity in our family. They're not being cared for the same way that the majority widows who have been cradled to grave here in Jerusalem are being treated. We got to fix this. 
So Stephen's part of the team that makes sure minority widows in the family are cared for. So he's serving the family, right? The widows, minority widows, all the widows in the family. But this week we see him where? Among the people, meaning uh, among the people would be outsiders or people outside the family, people not yet in the family. And what's he doing? We already read this. He's full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs. He was among the people for their good. So even in this opening portion, we can see that the father gifts and empowers Stephen to serve in the family and to serve people outside the family. So our next question is this, how specifically am I, as a follower of Jesus, how am I serving the family and how am I serving people outside the family? Now, we can't settle for a general answer because every Christian would respond to a question like, hey, you serving Jesus? Well, yeah, like every morning when I get up. Like, okay, fantastic. We can't give general answers, guys. We got to be specific. The question is not this. Man, I wonder if God has given me a gift. I wonder if I'm empowered. No, 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 no. That's, that's the point of the text. When you're adopted into the family, the Father gives you a gift. Gifts for his fame and the good of people. That's not a question. Man, am I empowered like Stephen? Well, that's not a question either. Yes, every follower of Jesus has been given a full measure of the Spirit. That's not a question. What's the question? How specifically am I using the gifts that God has given me and the empowerment of His Spirit for the good of the people in this family right here? That's the question. Specifics. And then the next question is, how am I using my gifts that God has given me and the empowerment of the Spirit that God has given me to be out among the people existing for their good in the margins and in the brokenness. How specifically, right? That's our next question. Serving people. Like Stephen, we are gifted and empowered to serve. Now we are introduced to some conflict in the story in verse 9. We see that Stephen's own people, even though he's serving them, the Hellenist Jews rise up and dispute him, right? Because Stephen's all about Jesus. Obviously, that's the point of contention. Look at verses 10 to 14. It says, they could not withstand, uh, they're, they're arguing against him, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Verse 11, so they secretly instigate men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Like, there's your tweet. Now retweet it. Get it out there. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses to lie about him, saying, hey, man, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this physical temple. Didn't Jesus himself say that? Okay. And will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus fulfilled everything that Moses foretold. And gazing at him, this is awesome. This verse is great. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Well, who else's face had been like a face of an angel? And Israel had been rescued from Egypt. Moses goes up the mountain, gets the word. He's in God's presence. He comes back. People wouldn't even want to look at him. Like they were scared to be in Moses' presence. Why? Because he'd been in God's presence. In other words, he was so full of God's spirit, it was obvious physically that this man was walking with God. It was obvious. It's hilarious here because who did they just accuse him of being against? Moses. Yet his face would have been just like Moses. In other words, he's wearing Moses' jersey like he's on Moses' side. And they're trying to posture him as this enemy of God's people. 
But instead, Stephen had this quiet confidence that can only come through the Spirit. He had fearlessness in his eyes. Not anger, not anxiety, not reactivity where he's angry against non-Christians. Just a calm, quiet confidence and a physical, just an obvious physical reality that he was filled with the Spirit. Chapter 7 opens with a plot twist, right? Because we see 6 closing with opposition. Seems like game's over. They've got him arrested. He's on trial. They're talking Adam. It seems like game over. But guys, in opposition, we can often feel that way. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel opposition into opportunity, comma, here's a really important point, when it's spoken out loud. The gospel turns opposition into opportunity with three words. Look at that, verse 1, chapter 7. And Stephen said. What did he say? He just shared the gospel. So this brings us into our second phase. We looked at Stephen serving. Now we'll see Stephen sharing the gospel. Stephen said, and what he's going to do is he's going to recount the people's history. He's going to tell a story. That's how we share the gospel. He tells the story of his people, but what he does is the characters are going to change. They're all going to change. One thing remains the same. His whole point, his common thread through the whole story is God's presence, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, and the need for a rescuer. That's how the gospel is shared through story. And here it is. It all begins in chapter 7, verse 2, with God appearing. That's how the gospel begins. God appears. uh, Stephen says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. I I love that he would begin right here. It has to begin right here. That word appeared means that God is the pursuing one. Abraham did not appear to God. God appeared to Abraham. Abraham wasn't pursuing God. God pursued. He's the pursuing God. He's the initiating God. Abraham didn't initiate. God initiated And friends, that's the good news of the gospel. Simply this, God appears in your darkest night, in your greatest pain, in your lowest valley, in your worst rebellion. That's where God appears. Religion would say, get yourself back out of the valley. Clean up your rebellion. Don't make it so bad. Get close enough so that God can see you. Those are all lies. And it's an oppressive weight that none of us can carry. The good news of the gospel is simply this. God appears. The glory of God appears. So God appears, and then check out verse 3. God, the appearing God, sends. And God said to him, what? Go. Go. So our missionary God, who himself is the appearing one, shows up, rescues Abraham, and then looks at him and says, go. Key on us off to this reality, guys, that God appears as rescuer and always sends the rescued. Always. God appears as rescuer and he sends the rescued. God sends. So God appeared. Second piece of the good news of the gospel is God sends. And third, God commits. Look at verse 8. It says that he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. Now, if you're new to the Bible, circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign that God gave his people. It was just to be a physical demonstration, a little weird, I know, but it was their sign as a family that they, that they were exactly that, family. It was, it was their sign that they were family. It was God saying to them, this marks you, this sets you apart, and I'm your God. You're my people. You're my son. You're my daughter. Now, again, if you're, if you're new to the Bible, new to Christ, I'm so glad you're here. Take a deep breath. God gives us a new sign. It's no longer circumcision, all right? 
It's baptism. And so in baptism, God says the same thing over us. You are forever mine, daughter. You're my son, and I will never let you go. Circumcision is a sign that God is a relentlessly committing God. And that's good because our commitment levels are like what? Okinawan weather, just up and down and unpredictable and all over the place. God's the committing God. So he appears, he sends, he commits to his people. He will never let them go. And now the story shifts from Abraham to Joseph, but the focus remains on God. And what we see in Joseph is this, God stays. Verses 9 and 10, Joseph is sold by his brothers as a slave. He is falsely accused of sexual harassment, essentially. He's imprisoned. He's going to be executed. And all all of this, it says, but God was what? With him and rescued him out of how many of his afflictions? All of his afflictions. The father looks at Joseph and says, son, I'm with you. In every moment, in every pain, in every joy, in every sorrow, at your worst, I'm with you. I don't leave. I'm with you in the valley of the shadow of death, and I will be with you when you step out of the valley of the shadow of death and back into the sunlight. And while you're in your valley, while you're in the darkness of this night, my presence will sustain you. I am with you. Don't be afraid. I am the God who stays. God doesn't just appear and then stay with the good kids. God appears and commits himself and stays with all the kids at their best and at their worst and in every season. God appears, God sends, God commits, God stays. And my favorite piece in all of this, God exchanges. The story shifts from Joseph to Moses. And look at verse 20. Moses was born. Look at what this says. You guys ever seen this before? He was what? In whose sight? God's sight. He was beautiful in God's sight. What? Uh, one, of, one of the earliest pastors who mentored me had a hypersensitive conscience, and so he couldn't lie to new moms. And so he'd teach me how to do, like, hospital visits for babies and stuff, and he'd take me occasionally. And we'd walk in, and he'd just be like, man, wow. Wow, man, it's the, the, that's a baby right there. That's awesome. That's a baby. But he'd never lie. He never told a mom her baby was beautiful. Why? Because generally babies aren't. Sorry. That's just love speaking, right, when you're, I'm Sorry. That's an agreement right there. That that sound was agreement. They're not, man. Moses is born and he's beautiful in God's sight. Guys, we're so used to hearing the other side of the gospel. I want you to hear this side. The, The gospel does speak some very important truth about us. We're not beautiful. In fact, the Bible would say that we're enemies of God. We're born into this rebellion. So we're postured as enemies from day one. Enemies, hostile, the image of God in us is polluted or corrupted. Like, it's, it's not beautiful. It's not beautiful. Maybe that's why babies aren't born beautiful, to teach us some truth about a spiritual. It's just, it's just the truth of who we are. And that's why Jesus said, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born again. You've, you've got to be born again. That's what that means. You've got to be born again by faith in Jesus because we're dead. But at the new birth, our ugliness is exchanged Christ takes the ugliness from us, and the Father gives us the beauty of Jesus, the perfect Son in our place. I get His beauty. And that's incredible because now the Father looks at every one of you who are His kids, and do you know what He sees? Beauty. Ugliness exchanged for beauty. 
That's good news because you don't feel beautiful. And probably some of you lived out rebel tendencies this week that just affirmed for you, man, there's a lot of ugliness left in my life. You probably came in here this morning feeling ugly. The father in Christ looks at you and says, that's my beautiful daughter. That is my beautiful son, and I affirm them in Jesus. The father says it is true, just like he spoke it over Moses. In Christ, he speaks it over you too. God appears, God sends, God commits, God stays, God exchanges ugliness for beauty. God rescues. Look at verse 34. He says to Moses, look, Moses, I have surely seen the affliction. He sees it. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning. I hear it. And so I've come down to crush them, to punish them. Oh, the good news of the gospel is that God comes down to deliver, to rescue. That's the good news of the gospel. Religion would tell you, you need to get yourself up to God so you can find uh, rescue. The gospel says God comes down to you in your worst possible condition. God comes down to deliver. And now, 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 now look at this. Look at how the deliverance is played out. Check this out. And now come, Moses, I will send who? You to Egypt. I will send you to Egypt. Guys, God comes down to rescue rebel kids like you and me who deserve judgment. We get kindness instead of judgment. We get beauty exchanged for our ugliness. And then the father says, now I'm sending you. God appears as rescuer and he sends the rescue. Let me just ask you a question. Have you been rescued by Jesus? Like for you personally, you don't have to answer out loud, but answer it for yourself. Have you been rescued by Jesus? If your answer is yes, you are also then sent by Jesus. There is no rescued person who's not a sent person also. You're rescued, you become a rescuer. You're sent by Jesus. So much good news in the gospel, guys. We could keep going. But we've seen that God appears, God sends, God commits, God stays, God exchanges, God rescues, and then he invites us, calls us into the work of rescuing. What better existence could you have? Come on. What better existence than you have? We spend most of our day searching for meaning. You still have conversations about what you're going to do when you grow up because you haven't figured it out like 14, 15 years, 19 years in, and you're just waiting for your DD214 so you can go do what you're going to do when you grow up. Guys, Christians don't have to wonder why we're here. And there is no better purpose than this right here. The rescued become the rescuers. That's why you exist. You're in God's family for his fame and for the good of others. Guys, yo, that's why you're in Okinawa. I know some of you are still angry. Like you're still going to your counselor to talk about your detailer or your monitor. Um, that's all right. I go to a counselor too. That's good. Um, but it's really not their fault. Like God brought you here. He used the monitor. He used the detailer. He used your dream sheet. He's like, what's last? Okinawa? Perfect. That's first. Because we all know that's how it works. You are here for the good of those not yet adopted in. You don't have to go to your counselor anymore. That's why you're here, right? That's it. Their couch is awkward anyway. Guys, the gospel is such good news in part because of the bad news that it tells us. Basically, if we had to summarize this whole talk, Stephen's about to look him in the eyes and say, look, our parents 
rebels too. That's the rest of the talk. Our parents were rebels and you're rebels too. Look, verse 35 says, God sent Moses as both ruler and redeemer. Verse 36, Moses led them out. God used, man, he was performing wonders and signs in Egypt, the Red Sea, and the wilderness. In other words, all along the way, God was making it obvious that he had come down to rescue them. Obvious, inescapable. Verse 37, not only is it inescapable through the signs and wonders, but Moses actually verbally promised them. He said, look, as good as this rescue out of Egypt is, you all were physical slaves. You're actually spiritual slaves too. You need to be set free with more power than I have. I can't can't set you free from that brokenness. But here's the good news. My rescue of you from Egypt is just meant to point you to the better rescuer who's going to come after me, who's going to lead you out of your spiritual slavery and lead you back to the God who created you and give you life. God's going to raise up a prophet like me from your brothers, he says. But look at verse 39. Rebel parents, our fathers refused to obey him. Rather, they thrust him aside. We don't want this. We don't believe you. And in their hearts, they turned right back to Egypt, to their slavery. So verse 42, God himself turns away. That's a statement of judgment. You guys, that's what happened with Adam and Eve, our first parents. They rebelled against God, and God turned away. He sent them out. That's the worst judgment that you can know, to be apart from your father's presence. God turned away. And he gave their hearts over, it says, to the very thing they wanted, which is insanity. There are countless signs and so much mercy. God extended so much mercy, but he's also just. And so he's executing justice and he was giving judgment. The gospel tells us the truth. Now I can imagine Stephen turning and looking him in the eyes with some emphasis. And he says, guys, look, you're just like your parents. You're rebels. Look at what Stephen says, verse 51. You stiff-necked people. You're uncircumcised in hearts and ears. Now, that's like Bible talking is confusing. Uncircumcised in hearts and ears. What? Remember, circumcision is a sign, just a physical sign of what's true spiritually. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. But he just said they're uncircumcised in their hearts. What's that mean? It means you were born Southern Baptist. It means you were born Catholic. It means you were born Methodist. Like, fill in the religion. Fill in the denomination. That's what he's saying. They're like, guys, you were born Jewish. But that's it. You know how to dress, you know the songs to sing, you know the Bible verses we're going to say, you know the culture, you know how to kind of fit in, you know cultural Christianity. You were born in the South. It's not in your heart. That's offensive, right? They were offended. That's what he said to them. You always resist the Holy Spirit. The Father's done countless signs for you. He's shown you so much mercy, but as your fathers did, so do you. What did they do? They persecuted and killed those who announced a rescuer better than Moses would come. That's what they did. And then what did they do? Stephen says, you betrayed and murdered the better rescuer. You're culpable for Jesus' death. You're just like your parents. You resist the Holy Spirit. Family, we're the same. Stephen's not telling their story. He's telling our story. Our hearts turned to Egypt. The very thing we were enslaved to. That's where our hearts, even though we're adopted kids, isn't that our daily experience? You feel your heart turning back to your Egypt? Our hearts turn. We resisted the Holy Spirit. But what's the good news of the gospel? In spite of our turning and in spite of our resisting, God appeared and overpowered the turning and overpowered the resisting. And God committed himself to us no matter what. You're my son now and you're my daughter. Friends, 
If you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus as your rescuer, can I just kindly say as a friend, God, the Father, is doing so many signs and wonders around you. The sun rises every day. Air flows through your lungs every day. Blood courses through your veins. Your stomach is filled not with just with nutrition, but good, yummy food and drink every day. You sleep well and you sleep safely. God does so many. He does a thousand good things for you every time your heart beats. It beats because God has it beat. Everything around you is your father showing his kindness and his mercy to you. The problem is you're resisting the Holy Spirit. The Spirit exists to point you back to your dad. And as a friend this morning, I'm so glad you're here if you're not yet a Christian. Please stop resisting the Holy Spirit. Receive him. Respond to him. He's calling you back to the God who created you. He's calling you out of your Egypt, your slavery. He's calling you to life. Well, as good as the gospel is, it's also offensive, especially for those of us who did. I grew up religious. I get it. It's offensive to hear you're a rebel, and that's what's happening. This religious crowd is enraged. So now we transfer. We saw serving. We saw sharing. And now we're in the suffering phase, phase three. This religious crowd is enraged. Like, what do you mean we're guilty? We're rebels. We're resisting the spirit. That's ludicrous. I'm a good person verse 55 to 56, like you can feel the rage building and you can imagine being in that room, right? You're the only person in there. Uh, let, me, let me say that differently. Every other person in there is against you and it's hostile. How are you feeling? Overwhelmed, alone, fearful, scared, intimidated. Why did I ever open my mouth? How's this gonna end? But he, full of the Holy Spirit, verse 55, looked up to the sky and the father gives him a gift. This isn't normal. We don't get to see this every day. God could give you this gift. He certainly could, especially if you were facing opposition. I pray that every one of you in this room experiences this moment in your lifetime. How cool would that be? Stephen looks to the sky. The heavens are ripped open. Who does he see? He sees the glory of his father. He sees his dad there. He sees his father and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the God of God. He sees his rescuing king. Verse 56, and he says out loud to this angry crowd, he says, guys, look, look, the sky's ripped open. Can you see what I see? They can't. They don't have eyes of faith. The heavens are opened. I see the son of man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. Guys, you know what we see in this? When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't see rage. You see your rescuing king. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not reactive against people. You see your rescuing king. But we know better. We know that when we're not filled with the Spirit, we see rage. We focus on the enemy. We become the stereotypical, because it's true, angry Christian that's against everything and everyone. We do what Fox News tells us to do, and we fight a culture war. We're against people. We're against culture. That's not biblical. That's how we live out our faith when we're not filled with the Spirit. When we're filled with the Spirit, we don't see rage. We don't see enemies. We see people that we've been sent to rescue. When we are filled with the Spirit, we don't, we're not reactive. We share the goodness of the gospel, guys. When we're filled with the Spirit, no rage, rescuing king. 
So the crowd hates this, though. They cover their ears. This is so offensive to them. It's blasphemy. They just put Jesus to death for something like this, like his claim that he was the son of man, that he was related to the father in this special way. So they're absolutely enraged. They rush him. They drag him outside the city. They stone him. Let me just give you a little glimpse of history of stoning uh, from Hebrew history books. 15 feet from the place of stoning, they would stop and give the person who was going to be stoned the opportunity to confess so that they would have hope of mercy in the afterlife. Not because they were going to change their mind on the stoning, they were still going to get stoned. And for the record, just so you contextualize the gospel, stoning means having a rock picked up and thrown at you. We're not talking about drugs or, okay. I say that because one of the places I served in youth ministry was kind of an urban environment. And uh, I was telling the story of the woman caught in adultery one time and she was going to be stoned. And the, the energy in the room was just like, the kids were getting super, it was just weird. So I stopped. I'm like, what's wrong, guys? And they're like, dude, this is so confusing. Like, why were they going to give her drugs for what she was doing? I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, they're going to pick up rocks and they're going to kill her, right? Stoning. So 15 feet out, chance to confess. Six feet out, they strip the, the, the person naked. All the clothes come off, six feet out. Then they walk them to a little bit of a ledge that's supposed to be twice the height of the person who was going to be stoned. I don't think that piece happened to Stephen. It doesn't sound like he was pushed over, but we'll get to that in a minute. And then a person from the crowd would push them from behind. So they fall face forward in hopes that the fall would actually kill them or knock them unconscious. So then they they go down and they flip the body over. And if he or she is dead, good, the game's over. If they're not dead, if they get a pulse, they get a big rock and they drop it from the ledge and they try to get it right down on the heart. So it stops the heart from beating. And if if that works, then it's game over. But if it doesn't work, which that didn't have, Stephen's still alive, Everybody in the crowd picks up rocks and gives the person a slow and torturous, painful death because clearly God wanted them alive long enough to experience that kind of judgment. Verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's Stephen's way of saying, Jesus, here I come. I can see you now. You're closer than when I saw you in the clouds a minute ago. I can see you. I've served. I've shared. I'm suffering. And I'm about to come home. I know you're waiting to receive me. And I know you're waiting because you've been my faithful king in all of life. So I know you will be my faithful king in death. You gave me confidence in life. And now you're giving me calmness in death. I'm okay. I'm coming home, dad. Here I come, receive me. When, we, when Stephen's asking to be received, I think, of a young, I think of my own kid, my youngest son, asking to be caught by, a trust, by, by, by one that they trust so deeply. So Owen's still just four, so we're still in the season of life where he will just run and with reckless abandon, jump into my arms, and we'll do so off of just about any ledge, surface, most heights. Why? He trusts me. Why? Because at least in Owen's case, I've never dropped him. Not yet. Not yet. So he knows dad will trust him. And so what does he say? Catch me, daddy. I came home one day this week. There were some friends over at the house. Owen jumps off the couch. That's my dad is what he says, which is great. It makes me just want to go out the door and come back in again one more time. That's my dad. And he runs towards me and he says, catch me, daddy. And he jumps into my arms. That's what Stephen's saying, and that's the posture of his heart. Catch me. I'm, almost, I'm home. I'm almost home. 
Guys, and the beautiful truth of the gospel right there is those people that Jesus rescues in life, he will always receive in death, no doubt. So I just want to ask you this morning, I know you're all confident in something in life. Is that your confidence in this life? Is that your confidence in death? Those Jesus rescue in life, he receives in death. Verse 60 says, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. Where would he have known those words from? Jesus said that very thing from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. The only way you can pray these words over the people killing you is if you know that Jesus has already spoken them over you and that they mean something. Stephen was dying. His vision's blurry. His breathing is shallow. He's fading in and out of consciousness. Stones are flying. Some making contact, some missing. And as Stephen's life was fading, his hope did not. You could say it was well with his soul. It was well with Stephen's soul. It was well because like Abraham, Jesus had appeared to Stephen. It was well for Stephen because Jesus had sent him for this moment. This was not a tragedy or an accident. This was not a failure for Stephen's parents or the widows that he served to pray to keep him safe. We're not called to live safe existences, guys. It was well with his soul because he knew this is what he had been adopted into the family for and then sent out by Jesus for this moment right here. He'd been sent to the darkest corner of his culture given the privilege of sharing the good news of the gospel. He was living into his created purpose. No regrets, no tragedy. He wasn't dying too soon. His death would spark an explosion of the gospel. Christian martyrs don't die to take them to, 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 to inflict damage on other people. Christian martyrs die so that others can live. And that's what Stephen was doing. It was well because Stephen knew the father was committed to him in life and death. It was well because like Joseph, Stephen knew God is the father who stays. He was in the valley of the shadow of death and God was right there with him and the father was going to walk him out on the other side where the sun would rise over his darkness. His soul was well because the father had already exchanged his ugliness for Jesus' beauty. Stephen didn't have to die well in this moment. There was no pressure for the father to accept him. Jesus had already died well on Stephen's behalf. And so now Stephen was fully accepted, perfectly loved, forever kept, sent by Jesus. No fear in death because he was already beautiful in his dad's sight. He didn't have to be a good kid to get his dad's affirmation. He already had his dad's affirmation. And so he boldly went to the darkest place, shared the gospel, and was dying with absolute calmness and confidence. And so Stephen's eyes closed, but in closing, his faith became sight. It wasn't just that he could see Jesus. He took Jesus by the hand and he was home. I wonder, friends, is it that well with your soul this morning? Maybe not. Maybe it never has been. Maybe it once was, but it no longer is. Whatever the case, I want to invite you to close your eyes now in life before you close them in death. 
And I want to invite you to ask Jesus for eyes to see so that when you open them again with eyes of faith, the Spirit will help you to see Jesus as your rescuing King. And you will know the Father as a perfect Father who loves you perfectly, keeps you forever, and affirms you fully in Jesus. Guys, it needs to be made well with your soul. And what the gospel is telling you this morning is it is God through the Spirit. He is the only one who can make your spirit well. Let's pray. Father, please pour out your spirit. Bring hearts to life. Restore wellness. Give wellness for the first time so that as we sing together, we can each sing in sincerity, believing Jesus as as our rescuing king, believing you, spirit, that you make it well. It is well with our soul because you are the appearing keeping, committing, staying, rescuing God. Father, please appear in glory through your spirit to everyone in this room and make it well with our souls.